Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're continuing our coverage of Wolfe's first novel, Operation Ares, published in 1970. We're doing chapters 7 and 8 today. Last time, we left off with John Castle preparing for a nocturnal rendezvous with the Martian invaders, and with that in mind, I think we can just jump straight into it, Brandon. That's right. Glenn, if you remember, we were a little bit concerned about you know a time hop taking place that would leave much of the action of the novel uh, to take place off, off page. But instead, this chapter, which is chapter 7 called Where Only Delight Lives, opens with a shift in point of view, which maybe is no less jarring, but at least it's nice to have some continuity in time. Wolf opens chapter seven with Japhet on the night and the early morning after the hunter's ritual that the last chapter closed with. He was glad to spend some time with John and Anna at night because it made time move more quickly. In the past, he's had to resign himself to accomplishing inessential chores to, quote, fill the slow hours until daylight. As daylight approaches, Japhet follows his new routine, and he goes to the newsstand to chat with the proprietor and to pick up a newspaper. Even though the paper only has information that the government wants its citizens to know, Japhet feels he should still be informed on some level. The headline of today's paper reads, Enemy Lands. The Martians, we learn, have landed in Brownsville. The newsstand owner thinks that maybe they want to rob Fort Knox of its gold, but Japheth says that, quote, there hasn't been enough gold in this country to fill a tooth for 40 years. I just love that line. <laughs> I thought it was just a great bit of prose. Yeah, it's a really good line and, and interesting as well in, in terms of the world that Wolf is is building here. Wolf is writing this actually only a few years before what's known as the Nixon shock when the United States and then therefore the rest of the world finally went off the gold standard for currency. And we now just have money by fiat uh, in terms of that. That's how we've value money is simply by fiat, by by the government saying how much the money is worth rather than backing it up with any sort of precious metal, with gold. And although Wolf is writing about, writing this sentence before the Nixon shock, and probably even before that's really even being discussed as a possibility, it's clear that, uh, to me at least, I think that uh, when that did happen, Wolf was not pleased with it. This seems to be a real dig about the mismanagement of monetary policy. Oh, absolutely. He brings up numerous times in this novel how the Treasury is bankrupt and all, all this sort of language about uh, f- funds being misused. And it's just interesting to think about a nation with a real treasury, which was the case for us until the 1970s. Yeah, it seems it seems like kind of a quaint idea. And in fact, I would say this entire scene is full of quaintness here. This business with the newsstand was real quaint and, and sort of nice. I found myself having a lot of nostalgia for buying a newspaper at a newsstand. I'm not sure I've ever actually done that. I think it's only something I've seen on TV. But it seems like a nice way to be connected to your community. Somehow. Yeah, at least it's a great way to start the morning. You know, you just go out and get the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the Jafa and the newspaper man talk about some knowledge they have in common about the Martians, and this is some exposition for the reader as well. We learn that the Martians have some kind of thing that burrows, and I think we're supposed to understand that they also have some form of mechanized armor. Yeah, exposition is right, Brandon. This first scene, although I find it full of quaintness, is 
also a complete mess. And I know we're saving our discussion of craft and story structure, et cetera, for our wrap-up conversation that we're going to have with Mark Aramini. But this scene exists only to tell the reader this this one piece of information. Yeah, I agree with you. And this whole chapter is full of these types of moments. And what I find interesting is that this chapter, to me, is one of the better chapters of the novel because it's actually mostly focused on action and activity but it's three points of view, and it's just a lot to take in as well. Well, with that little teaser for our wrap-up episode, I think let's uh, let's get on with the recap. Yeah, so Japheth uh, pays for a newspaper, and he leaves. And he takes a moment to think about where his loyalties really lie. He doesn't feel particularly loyal to the militias that he's been a part of, or to the cause uh, that we're told he has been taught to revere since childhood, though he is nearby to people loyal to that cause, he could still go out and meet them. I'm not exactly sure what this is referring to. um, And I'd love, Glenn, if you have any thoughts about this or our readers, if they've read along what this could mean. But he does value the militia because they've given him a rifle and insignia and money. Japheth heads back to the hunter's headquarters. And soon someone asks him if they know where John Castle went. Yeah, I'm intrigued as well by some of these these musings that Japheth has. And this goes back to a question that I had really in the opening pages of chapter one about what it means to be awakey and this germplasm of space. And I think maybe we're meant to understand that Japheth and Anna's father was an astronaut. Yeah, that's sort of my read of it as well, particularly because there's like the photo of the astronaut on the mantle. But now that you mention that, that must be who his people are, these other scientists. And there must be other families of astronauts, I suppose, that have built some kind of other network in this broken down version of the United States. But it's just not clear enough in this text to really understand what Japheth is thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really pointing to a sort of secret community of people who like science and have to hide their science-loving identity from their neighbors, uh, which actually would be a really interesting story if Wolf had chosen to focus right. on that aspect of it. Right. And, and 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 Wolf does a lot, even in these chapters, to say that there's been no indigenous movement against the government up until the Martians planted this idea of Ares into the population. And so it's just a little, it's a little bit of confused writing, I think, when we're trying to understand what Wolf is trying to put across. I agree. And and I can only hope that this is an idea that Wolf will explore in some short story that I don't remember or haven't read that we will encounter in the, the months or years to come. Me too. Well, it's going to be a moment until we find out where John Castle is gone because we are treated to another switch in point of view. Now it's time to catch up with the captain. The captain has gotten his hands on some real power and a pistol to back it up. He's the chief of civil police, which is an organization that has been recently reestablished. And we find the captain speaking with a Russian who is trying to evacuate his people from a combat zone. The captain is not convinced that the Russians need evacuating just yet, as it could disrupt the important work that they're engaged with. Before the captain will get vehicles to the Russians for an evacuation, he'll need to see their facility and understand what needs moving. The two men discuss the ongoing battle with the Martians. 
The Americans have an endless supply of bodies to throw at the Martians, but they're all untrained. The only weapon a lot of these people have are rusted rifles and Molotov cocktails. The captain claims here that there are 20 million men and women under arms and that this is one-fifteenth of the total population, which is going to put that total at 300 million, which is really right about where we are now. And I found this detail actually kind of surprising because we have this line in chapters five and six about how, or actually I think it's chapters three and four, about how how Russia is greater than the United States in both uh, extent and population. And that's not true. Russia has a much smaller population than the United States. It's about half of what the United States is. Uh, even if it was still the Soviet Union, it would be about two thirds of what the United States is now. So I had assumed that the United States for some reason had a very low population that in fact, there had been perhaps some catastrophe that had happened as a result of overthrowing the constitutional government or the Mars program bankrupting the economy that there had been some kind of, you know, massive famine or something like that, that had in fact killed a lot of people, but that doesn't turn out to be the case. Uh, so does this really just didn't seem to jive for me with, with the inferences I had been making about the world? Yeah, that's right. Well, even though it's the case that the, armed Americans only have these terrible weapons. The Martians have pretty good weapons and a technology that allows them to project themselves. And this is a technology that we saw earlier with holograms, but this is used in combat. And their ability to create projections makes it really difficult to hit targets on a battlefield. The captain suggests to the Russian that he go and get them some lunch. And he's going to consider the decision to evacuate the base. When the Russian leaves, the captain reflects upon what he would like to accomplish with his power. He wants to strike down every enemy and sympathizer. He's going to be on the forefront of the new theater of war against the Martians and the Chinese. There's an interesting note, Brandon, in the captain's musings here that really, I think, helps emphasize this great observation that you had made a few episodes ago about how there just doesn't seem to be any religion anymore, uh, that certainly Christianity uh, and Judaism don't seem to be existing in the United States of the pro-tem government. And there's a line here in which the captain thinks this, providentially, uh, he did not believe in providence, call it fate, the Martians had chosen his area in which to land, right? And providence, of course, meaning God or the, the will of God. Uh, and so we have here finally a, a character, a, a true believer in the pro-tem government's mission, correcting himself when he accidentally has a thought about there being a God. Right. And it's a thought. And that's what's really interesting. He's monitoring his own thoughts. And I think as we'll see briefly with the captain, he is a true believer in the pro-tem government. The Russian returns to the captain, and he tells him that lunch will be delayed. So the, the captain suggests that they tour the facilities while they wait for food. These two men are also interested in the burrowing things the Martians have. Uh, the Russian, interestingly, refers to these creatures as golems. The facility that the captain is touring is in a place where the Russians roboticize, as we discussed uh, last in the last two chapters, their soldiers. Yes, and I have to admit publicly on the air, Brandon, that I was completely wrong in my reading. I really thought that these were actual robots, and the image I had in my 
head actually was the something like Doctor Who Cybermen. Right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, but it turns yeah. out they're just lobotomized people, as right. as you insisted correctly. <laughs> I know, I know the blank face of a lobotomy victim when I see one. <laughs> the subjects of this process of roboticization are put under hypnosis. Their eyes are kept open. Headphones are placed on their ears, and they watch the static of a television screen that is encoded with subliminal messaging of, of some kind. The captain is intrigued by this process and kind of wants to try it for himself. The Russian informs the captain that there is a far more serious process that everyone in the USSR undergoes. It involves brain surgery along with this hypnosis. And this process has been so successful in Russia, it removes all, it has removed all the crime, disagreement, and self-seeking from the population. The captain, though, isn't interested in the surgery, but he would like to experience what's called the rectification process for himself. The Russian has a drug injection brought out, and the captain sits in front of the screen and is put under the spell of this process. He feels totally pacified. The screen comes into focus. He sees a small farm with crops growing spottily on the sterile clay land. A wretched hovel sits in a small patch of this land, and a man tells him that he knew the captain would come. The captain has a message to bring them, a message of hope about relocating the man and his family to a community farm in Arlington, where the homes keep out the cold and the water always runs. The people on the farm would like to come and work hard for their father in Arlington. The captain is glad to see that the message in this rectification process matches his closely held ideological beliefs. And the captain is left in this state as the action switches us back to John Castle's POV. This is a real disturbing scene. I mean, we've all seen this uh, set to Ludwig van Beethoven in A Clockwork Orange before, uh, but this is pretty grotesque. And I think what's really grotesque about this is that the people in this facility are the prisoners who are having this forced upon them, but the captain is excited to do this. He seems to think that this is this is a good thing and wants to have it happen to him as well. Yeah, in fact, Nani is one of the captives in this facility. Yes, right. Prisoner 8540. Right. And he shows up here, I believe, in this chapter as just uh, unnamed, numbered only subject that the readers know who it is. And it's a nice bit of wolf trickery. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting. I don't know if this will turn out to be Chekhov's brainwash victim or not. Uh, if, if Nani will actually reappear in the, the climax of the novel as as some kind of uh, inside assistance. Maybe he'd be the person to actually take out the captain or something like that. If we were writing this as an action movie, that's exactly what we would do. Uh, I don't know that Wolf really uh, follows the conventions of action movies in his novels. No, I don't think so. And Nani would need a strong enough love to break him out of the hypnosis. <laughs> well, we're finally back to John Castle, our protagonist. He's waiting in the park, in a park, I should say, for the Martians to come pick him up. It's a park near the river. He wonders if Anna will be joining him and how the Martian ship is going to land without being seen by anyone. He's genuinely concerned that Anna hasn't made it to the park because it could indicate that something terrible has happened to her. Sirens sound in the distance and they come closer. John hides in a doorway 
and soon the park is blazing with cruel light. And this light is accompanied by the sound of rotors. A huge helicopter lands, and men emerge from its belly. John enters the house in whose doorway he was hiding. A woman asks who's there, first in a foreign language, and then again in English. The corridor is lit with pink bulbs. John says that he is just a person like herself. The woman tells John that she's Czech, not Russian. And John explains that he was late and that a friend advised that he'd drop into this place. I think we're meant to understand that John, from the signifier of the pink bulb or something else, knows immediately what kind of place this is. But it's also something that Wolf is withholding from the reader. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's exactly right. John Castle really carries himself well here, and he even... He even makes a point of getting rid of his coat so that he won't stand out as either an outsider or a newcomer. So I think Castle here is poised and aware of his surroundings. It's really great characterization here and excellent storytelling. Yeah, this whole section I actually love and I wish there was more of it. I think we get something really similar to this at the end of Lost Loves in, in book one of the Book of the New Sun. Well, as you said, Glenn, John wants to leave his coat because it would give him away if he's wearing his coat into the room. And we learn now that John has opened the door into a place called the inn where only delight lives. The Czech woman, though, thinks that this place is a horrible place. It is nothing like what she was promised, where the boys are friendly and just want to dance and sing. She asks John if maybe he'd like to sit at her table as he's arrived with no one else. And John is flattered and he agrees. And I just want to say, I think there really is some truly wonderful prose describing this in as, as we've alluded to. In essence, it's a gentleman's club. And John enters the main room of this club and he witnesses two young girls charming a metal snake, like an automaton. And they're using a, a syrinx and another inst- metal instrument that's unfamiliar to John Castle. John thinks that the girls' costumes are beyond revealing, that they would look more modest if they were nude. I think this line is really great. Wolf writes, Both the girls wore gaudy slit and split costumes, indecent and tasteless as simple nakedness could not have been. Beautiful line. Gorgeous writing. We also learn from this passage that the In Where Only Delight Lives is one of the best and oldest establishments of its kind in the city. This show with the two girls and other types of acts go on as a dull thudding begins to take place outside. At first, it's infrequent, but then it becomes more and more continuous. As this show ends and the next act is to be introduced, the building trembles, the room tilts sideways, and several explosions detonate. The building collapses. John survives somehow, he's unsure how he survives, even as the collapse of the building forces them onto the street. The street itself begins to lift, and something bursts through the ground. A man in armor that makes him look like a robot singles out John, along with two of the people he is standing near, and then a creature, grotesque beyond belief, springs from the ground. And this is the end of chapter 7. Yeah, a really exciting chapter. As you say, Brandon, It's a, there's a lot of action in this chapter. And I think that there are some really interesting things going on in the inn where only delight lives about technology. Uh, and I think that's what we're going to actually focus on in our discussion today. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. 
Let's move on to chapter eight. Chapter eight is titled Power Dwells in the Heart. It opens with John, who is safe with the Martians, and partially it's because he identified himself with the Martian who emerged from the ground. Emil Lothrop is with him. John is not in the Martian orbiter, as he was told he would be, by Anna. Rather, he's in an underground facility in Mammoth Cave. This is where the Martians are headquartered on Earth. John is still very concerned about Anna Trees, and Emil lets John know that she's not at the facility. Emil explains a bit about how the facility was constructed, and that it would be difficult for the pro-tem government to defeat them down there, but not impossible. The pro-tem government is currently building a rocket to shoot the orbiter out of the sky, and so they move their headquarters to Earth, um, kind of on the down low. And we also learn here that Emil also believes that Anna may have been killed or captured. This construction method for building a base inside of Mammoth Cave is really cool. The Martians grow walls inside the cave. Lothrop calls this ticky-tacky, and it's, it's very, very cool. And so this is, this, again, this is something that we'll be talking about in the discussion. Emil suggests that John get some rest, and it's clear that he doesn't really have much empathy for John's situation, but he does offer to heal his wounds, his broken arm, etc., They also, though, they want him well-rested because he has some tests they'd like him to take. So John rests, and then he takes some tests, and that these tests include some odd questions. Yeah, there's some really interesting questions here, and I'm not quite sure what the point of them is, but I think it might be fun to go through them a a little bit. One of them is, who wrote advice to a raven in Russia, and what was the advice? Uh, This is a poem by the American diplomat and sometimes poet uh, named Joel Barlow. He he lived during the founding of the United States of America uh, and was, in fact, an important early diplomat for the young United States. This poem is about a raven who is following Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812. He's interested in eating the corpses on the, on the battlefield. And the advice that the narrator of the poem gives to the raven is to go back to Spain and spend the winter there where it is warmer. And the poem is really a criticism of Napoleon's militarism. The refrain is something like, it's okay to take a winter off because Napoleon's always going to be fighting battles. There will always be plenty of carrying to eat so long as Napoleon is around. And I'm not really sure how that lines up with the theme of the novel, That might, but this might be something that we keep in mind when we see how the novel completes. Right. The other question is about a novel called Ashenden, which is a kind of early form spy novel. So yeah, it's very strange questions, and I'm not sure what they'd be testing for John, and neither does John. And unfortunately, with Wolf, when our protagonist doesn't know something, neither does the audience. Yes, that's true. And there's another question here too, which is, uh, uh, the question is, why did Pompey lose? This is, of course, is Magnus Pompey, who was the loser in the, the civil war between himself and Julius Caesar that led to Julius Caesar's uh, ascendancy at the end of the Roman Republic. And so I will say that that this bit, the Pompey bit, the bit about Napoleon, and then also William Somerset Maugham's First World War spy novel may all have 
a running theme there of the defense of liberty against tyrants. That's the only connection I can really see offhand. But again, I think it might be interesting to revisit these when we've uh, finished reading the novel. I think as we'll see here in a moment, or at least as I'm going to state, you know, I think that's undermined a bit by the way that the Martian government, we learn, operates, and by some of the similarities between the kinds of things Emil asks John to undergo and the kinds of things he was asked to undergo as a pressed man. So I'm just, there's some interesting things going on in this chapter, particularly in the beginning. Those will be some interesting comparisons to make. There, There is one comparison I'd like to make before we leave this bit of the scene, which is that we do learn here that Emil Lothrop's office in Mammoth Cave is unfinished because he had the other parts of the base constructed first. And and this is a sharp contrast to the pro-tem bureaucrats that we meet in Chapter 3, where we learn that even the most useless and low-level bureaucrat has a nicer office than uh, a private doctor or the high school principal. So Wolf here, at least in this instance, is using Emil Lothrop and the Martians to stand in contrast to the pro-tem government. So I'll look forward to seeing the places where you think that they're not that dissimilar after all. Right. And I think what I'm trying, I think what I'm trying to say, and, and, and we'll get to as the more of the plot is revealed is that maybe one of the questions that, that is raised in this novel is, is the same action giving different meaning by different context, or is it just the action itself that matters? And I think that's a big question in this novel, as I think this chapter reveals. And it's a great question in the philosophy of history. These sorts of questions, these actions that are given contexts, even if it's the same type of thing that's being requested, the context matters significantly. And there's a bit of a theory on philosophy of history that Wolf is putting forth, perhaps, in this novel. But we'll see. (laughs) So after this uh, testing that John has put through, he's he goes to meet with Emil. Emil tells John that he is almost certain that Miss Trees is still alive. And we learn about what happened to her here. She entered into the battle zone in Manhattan, but she was not counted among the dead, which is all Emil has really for proof at this point. Emil then asks John if he'd like to join Ares. And I think there's a little bit of manipulation going on here because he kind of softens him up with this emotional information and then says well if she's not killed wouldn't you like to go get her or if she were killed wouldn't you like to avenge her so he's basically playing on the love that he knows that john and anna have for one another to get john to quickly join aries to quickly assent to joining it's a pretty good sales pitch yeah i think so it's it's a it's a great moment in the book um john does say that he'd like to join And now that John is a fully committed member of Ares, Emil can share some additional information with him. Anna and Sarah Yoshido succeeded in convincing President Huggins to join Ares. Anna was supposed to bring Huggins to the pickup point where they were all going to meet together. John was, it was the same night John was going to be there. And it's possible that someone overheard of her plans to get to the park and the pro-tem government stepped in to stop Huggins from joining Ares. And that's why there was a helicopter at the park at the pickup site. And there's this skirmish that we hear going on outside uh, the inn where only Delight lives. Emil also notes that John met one of the Delvers, which are the creatures that the Russian referred to as a golem and what we have been promised to learn, promised to be told more about since the beginning of chapter seven. 
Delvers are basically giant, hideous moles. <laughs> and <laughs> one of these undermined uh, the inn where only Delight lives, which is what caused its collapse. The men talk about Delvers for a moment more, and then a secretary comes in and gives Emil John's test scores. They confirm Emil's thoughts about John. John will be installed as the official human leader of Ares. John thinks that being installed as the leader of Ares is based on the series of tests alone, and that this is a fairly dubious form of decision-making. But Emil reassures John that his decision is not just based on the tests, but also based on the convenient fact that everyone had sort of already thought he was the leader of Ares when Ares was just a fiction that the Martians had been propagating around Earth. We learn here explicitly, as we alluded to before, that there has never been an indigenous pro-Martian movement on Earth. But now, Ares has 150 agents, and they're doing a pretty good job. (laughs) (laughs) I want to focus on these Delvers just a a little bit more, because there's actually some really neat stuff that we learn about them here. First, we learn that they're engineered by the humans who have gone to Mars, but they're engineered from an indigenous Martian life form, a Martian mole. So Gene Wolfe here is operating from the premise that there is life on Mars, uh, which you know, is not something we've 100% discounted yet, but if there is life on Mars, it's microbial. Not that we know that there's not a mole population on Mars. How cool it must have been in the 60s to not know that. Yeah, and he's saying... Look, it's not human life. It's not intelligent life like humans on, on Earth. But there is life on Mars. There is There are things living there. It's really cool. And perhaps that's why humans were able to go there in the first place. Yeah, and I think that's really quite interesting. And I think it's also very cool that the Martians are using this creature, these delvers, these golems that they have created, that they have engineered as a form of biotechnology that they're using for prospecting. They're, uh, they use them to delve into the ground to look for minerals that they need and for water. Right. It's also fascinating how they're used as a weapon of war as well. He says like their simple internal organs make them hard to kill and that they're good at being trained and they just like snatch car tires out of the, out of the ground as trucks <laughs> roll over their spots. It's a, it's, it's a nice bit of world, world building here. Yeah, all of it makes me yearn for the unwritten or at least unpublished Gene Wolfe novel about colonizing Mars. <laughs> <laughs> well, Emil wasn't only relying on this notion that a lot of people believed John was the leader of Ares. But he also observed John when John was with that, that prisoner column that was marching to New York. And in those chapters, Glenn, it seemed to us that Emil was actually on Earth. But I think we learn here that that wasn't the case. Emil was not the one who was affecting the re- attempting the rescue operation. Here the, we learn that the Martians are able to enter into the minds of one another and their agents via an implant. And we learn that Emil observed John's actions through the pilot who came down from the orbiter. And so John thinks that if Emil can do that, shouldn't he be able to get into Anna's mind since she was an agent? But Emil says they can't. Anna is off the grid, and Sarah Yoshido does not know what happened to Anna. And it could only mean that Anna is unconscious. And here, then, Emil asks John if he wants the implant. 
and he pitches it in basically the exact same way that the press pitched the fist fink. It's like, hey, this is, yeah, it's a little bit to monitor where you are, but mostly if you're in a jam, like it's dangerous out there and you'll want these people to come and get you if you're in a jam. And here's what I was talking about, about action and context. John was forced to wear the fist fink and it was really a symbol of his imprisonment. And here, the same technology, it's the same radio technology. It doesn't cripple him in any way, the same way that the fist fink did, but does monitor his location and it allows people even more to enter his thoughts. And yet John is willing to accept this implant because it, at least for now, um, is a superficial symbol of resistance and freedom. It's very interesting to me the way this is written. And I think there are, there's at least a superficial parallel going on here, if not something much deeper. No, I think that's a great insight. And those types of comparisons, those types of parallels is what I want us to get into in our discussion. Uh, and so I, I might ask you to extrapolate on that a little bit when we, when we get there in a few minutes. Yeah, we're almost, we're almost there. The conversation at this point switches to politics. And Emil explains to John that if the President Boyd disavows his support of Huggins, it would be disastrous for him because the people need to believe, at least the idea is that the people need to believe that it, even if the constitutional, that even if the constitutional government is effectively powerless, it still operates freely and of its own accord. And on Mars, Emil tells us there are political issues to be taken into account as well in in terms of this whole invasion that's going on. Many of the Martians still believe that if they can rekindle the Earthlings' desire to reach for the stars and, and their love of science, that support for the Martians' cause would just be a foregone conclusion. But Emil is one of the Martians who had gone to Mars 20 years ago when he was 19, right before the Martians were cut off from Earth. And people like him, who came right before the cutoff, are not the ones in political power on Mars. The Martians who are in power, came at least 10 years prior to that when there was still an understanding of American politics that's similar to what we have today. And those Martians have formed the predominant political thought on Mars. And over time, as they became more and more distanced from Earth and contact from Earth, they began to believe their own presuppositions about what had happened on Earth without any empirical data. It's fascinating. And they believe that there is no possible way that the people of the U.S. would allow the constitutional government to continue to run without any real power at all. And that once real power is returned to the constitutional president, the pro tem government would be forced to end. So they have maybe limited power, but they still have something like real power to affect things. But Lothrop and John know that this is just absolutely absurd. And and they know this because that John lives on Earth and he knows the situation. And Emil has actually visited Earth. Yeah, all of this makes me really empathize with these old school Martians. We've been hearing about them as Martians through the whole novel. But really, these are Americans who are on Mars. They're expats. And while they've been gone, their government's been overthrown and they want to do something about it. But they can't set aside their nostalgia for home. They can't understand that while they've been gone, 
it's not just that institutions have changed, but that the culture has changed. And that now they're not just expatriated, but they're actually foreign. They're actually alien to the United States in a very real way. But this is where we might see that, uh, you know, pioneers coming home sort of story that we we talked about uh, when we covered chapters three and chapter four. And and we also get in this section, uh, like the Martians' goals. And the, the Martians' goals are based on this assumption about the old America. They think that getting Huggins to the Martians is the number one thing that John should be doing as he takes the role of the leader of Ares from Emil, who has been wearing many hats, we we learn. Um, (laughs) Emil would love to give John as much support as possible, but the Martians have been misrepresenting their strength and they don't have much support left to give. Most of their weapons they've already changed They've already traded to the Chinese. And the Martians have to be careful about what they trade with the Chinese because they don't want to end up turning America over to the Chinese as they attempt this other type of transfer of power. Well, that conversation ends and Emil takes John to the transmitter room where John is allowed to try to access Anna's mind. He tries to contact her multiple times over what could be multiple days. And on the fifth time, he's finally able to reach out to her. He gives her some information about plans um, regarding the next stage of Ares. And he can tell that she feels joy and that she's reaching out to meet her consciousness with his. And it's kind of a lovely scene. Yeah, Wolf uses the word caress here, and it is really quite touching. I, I felt for them. Right. And one thing that's interesting is that we have the captain earlier on who is fully engaged in this tyrannical government, fully believes it 100%. And he censors his own thoughts, even though no one can access them. And here we have this ostensibly a group of freedom fighters who have no fear about what people see in their thoughts. It's I don't know. There's something to be made of that, I think. Yeah, we're, we're about to. Okay. Um, well, the action jumps ahead in time, two weeks. Uh, I, we've been waiting for a, a time jump for a little while. I yeah, think. Now we finally get it. Right? Um, and, and we find out that what John has planned with Ares is a rescue operation and a raid on the Russian base that is holding the kidnapped President Huggins. John understands that People will die in this operation, just as people are dying defending the Mammoth Cave headquarters. And this is a sneaky little line, but the headquarters on Earth of the Martians is also under attack here. Yeah, I had to wonder at this point if this wasn't some of the material that was cut, if Wolf hadn't actually narrated that battle, but it was cut by the editor. Right, and I don't think we're missing too much. I mean, it would have been another point of view switch, perhaps with Emil leading the charge or something like that. But I'm sure we'll meet Emil later. We learn, though, that even though these battles are happening and the and the battle for Earth is going on in earnest, esprit de corps is high, and John expects success. John has gotten the hunters to protest in front of this base, and he and his compatriots are dressed in Peace Guard uniforms. He and his men have tapped the phone lines, and they intercept a call from the Russians to the Peace Guard, requesting that the Peace Guard remove the protesters from the area of the base. And so John and his crew 
have a truck and they wait a little while and they go to pick up the hunters. And when they get there, they put all the hunters in the truck. They make the truck stall out. And this then requires the Russians to keep the new prisoners in defunct barracks on the base. But there's a bomb in the truck. (laughs) And the plan is that they park the truck near the power source for the base. And so everybody's been put into these barracks. And the hunters have their traditional religious weapons which are being you know their religious rights are being respected for some reason here and uh the bomb goes off and the lights go out and now they can rescue the president but the lights come back on very quickly because there is a generator so the plans change a little bit there are like three groups running around this base for this in this assault and uh there's a lot of chaos but john eventually gets to president chuck huggins room and 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 huggins isn't there because some other group has already freed him and this is information john gets from another patient in this hospital john enlists that patient to their cause and they flee the facility that was holding the president yeah he enlists this patient to their cause but only after the patient the patient thinks that john castle is one of the peace guard because he's wearing a pc uniform here and at some point the this other character this other patient says why am i telling you this you're the bad guy as if as if the character is sort of wondering why the author is making him spit out all this exposition <laughs> for the readers yeah i think that's exactly what's happening here well on the way out John is pinned down by machine gun fire from hundreds of figures. And these figures are all women in hospital gowns. And they are all Anna Trees. And this is the end of chapter eight. Yeah, this is that holographic technology that we've seen Emil Lothrop use when he is speaking to multiple groups at the same time and that we've we've heard that the Martians are using in a combat sense or as a combat tactic to make it difficult, make it impossible to figure out which target you should really be shooting at. Yeah, and it's unclear to me at this exact moment who Anna is shooting at and if she's been a victim of perhaps this brainwashing technique. So it's something I'm looking forward to see in the next chapter, the resolution of this wonderful, genuinely wonderful cliffhanger at the end of chapter eight. Yeah, it's very good. And I'm excited to see that the really probably the climactic action of the novel is going to take place. I don't think you said it in the recap, Brandon, but uh, not too far from where we are now. This is actually all happening on the the Jersey Shore, the southern New Jersey Shore. Uh, That's right, in Cape May. Cape May, where uh, everyone (laughs) here in Philadelphia goes uh, over the the summer and uh, not far from where I teach. And there's actually some really beautiful descriptions that Wolf gives us here of the the Pine Barrens, which is this very cool, I don't know, maybe not completely unique, but rare... uh, landscape of of dunes with pine forest growing on them this is where the infamous jersey devil lives Uh, it's a beautiful place to go hiking i've done it a few times i'd highly recommend it but you can also just read wolf's description and i think almost get the same feel yeah if you can go to cape may you should because it's a wonderful little town it's a great beach vacation but uh wolf does it justice here in in this book well, now that we've earned our sponsorship from the uh, Jersey Shore Vacation Board Commission, I don't know. It's a commission. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's time for us to, to move into the discussion. Yeah. So as I've said throughout the recap, 
Brandon, what I want us to do in the discussion is to, to focus on technology as we see it in in these two chapters in particular. And in particular, what I want to do is contrast the technologies of Mars and Russia as we see them in these in these chapters. And I want to do this broadly by maybe just talking a little bit about the sort of big contours of technological use, but I also think that we can find some specific points of comparison that will be useful. And and you've already pointed out this comparison between the fist fink and this mind reading implant that the Martians are using, for example. So just to get us started, I, I think I, I maybe I want to characterize broadly, painting with a very broad brush here, the types of technology that I see Russia using versus the types of technology that I see Mars using. Yeah, I think just right off the bat, we can say in in, in very broad terms that Martian technology is is a fair bit more elegant in its use and execution than Russian technology, or for that matter, the American sense of what they ought to be doing on the battlefield. So for instance, we know that if you have 20 million armed people who can't aim a gun or shoot it, it's as effective as having like five people who can shoot real well and a bunch of decoys. And that's what the Martians do. They are reducing the risk of death on the battlefield for their soldiers and agents by using technology. And while the Russians, everything has... Everything has a second purpose, at least as a weapon. And this was the case with the fist fink, where we were told, yes, it's a monitoring device. And I agree with you that it probably came from the Russians, but it also can be used as a weapon if you're hurting somebody. If you're in a situation where you need to swing your fists around, it can deliver some damage. I don't know if you remember this from the, from the soldier's manual in the army, but we have some in the back of that. There's some quotes about war and things like that. And one is from like a Russian field manual about how like if your weapon fails, if your rifle fails, use it as a club. If that fails, like start using your fists. If all else fails, just bite the enemy to death. (laughs) This is like very much what I'm seeing in the Russian technology. This is like everything has a primary purpose, but its secondary purpose is a weapon meant to do harm to other people where the Martians are perhaps a little clumsy on the ground, but they're not trying to destroy or do harm. They end up doing it. There is collateral damage, but maybe they feel bad about it, and that's okay. I don't know. Well, I think that's a great point. We could really think about the way that the Martians feel about life and about the loss of life and the value of individual life. We can contrast that with the way Russia feels and thinks about those things. And we can see this in the fact that Russia creates these lobotomized soldiers, which in part is in order to get people to be soldiers. It's to make the soldiers follow orders. But it is also so that we don't care if they die. Right. And this is perhaps here even an early instance of the uh, synthetic creatures that we met in the horrors of war. That's an excellent point. I think that you're right, there is an attempt here to dehumanize soldiers because there there will always be more of them. I think that's the captain's point about there being 20 million armed Americans is that what we lack in training and ability, we make up for in our ability to lose 
bodies. This was the Russian strategy in, in World War II. We can see how much the Martians contrast with this because the Martians actually use technology explicitly as a means of keeping people alive. And I guess we we know this broadly, that this is how they're living on Mars in the first place. This is how they're having coffee in their orbital platform in outer space. But also we see this in that they are using armor to keep people alive. And I think this is a real nice contrast, actually, visual contrast between two types of robots, people who've been lobotomized and people actually in suits of metal. And we also, as you point out, we have them using the holograms as decoys. The laser rifle is really more of a tool than a weapon. So I think there's a number of places where we see the Martians going to great lengths to keep people alive, where the Russians and even the pro-Tem government think people are expendable. Yeah, and this is even in contrast to John Castle's own attitude about going into battle, where there's something like an acceptable loss of life. It seems to me that the Russians don't have that as really a category of existence. And I think you're right that that comes from their being placed in an environment where all technology is about survival. And it's nonsense to use technology to kill when they understand their situation as being one that will offer them no more additional resources than what they can find for themselves. And this is, you know, maybe a thought we'd like to attribute to early man, but we are way, way out of balance when it comes to understanding that we have limited resources. This is the thing that really haunts me about the book of the long sun that Wolf communicates better, I think, than anyone else I've ever read, is that it is real that resources are limited. <laughs> yeah, we can even extrapolate that further to see some of the broader ways that the Russians and the Martians are using technology for different ends, or even really rooted in different value systems. Mars uses technology that is creative, right? This is this biotech. They are using life to grow walls inside the Mammoth Cave. They are creating new life forms out of these delvers to help them survive on Mars. Well, the Russians are using technology that is destructive or at the very least reductive. And in particular, they're using, you know, this brainwashing technology that turns people into machines that shuts life off inside of them rather than creating more life in the universe. That's absolutely right. And it's unfortunate, I think, that we get very little of what China is actually about in this novel, because in the America of this novel, we see that people are choosing a drug that reduces their humanness and reduces their ability to act like human beings. We have a cult that believes in the primitive nature of man and the savage nature of man. And we see this kind of choice, this false choice of savagery of savagery that humans in America are left with. And that is also contrasted with Russia's tyranny of removing the choice and just forcing everybody to do this anyway. And this is shown to be in the novel, in the mouth of the Russian, a more peaceful solution than the chaos in America, that this type of order is to be valued above giving the choice to the people who would choose just about the same thing anyway, but you're left with chaos instead of order. And it's a very chilling picture that Wolf paints here. Yeah, I think we need to talk about kind of the value of individuals and really individuals' psyches here as well. 
But before we do, before we do that, I want to just uh, offer up something that occurred to me while you were invoking the hunters, which is that the hunters scene really parallels this scene in the burlesque club, the 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 red light, the pink light cabaret, the the inn where only delight lives. In both of these cases, we have something that is essentially a show that involves an animal. The hunters, it's a it's a religious ceremony that is about returning humans to their place in the environment, to understanding that humans are animals like any other, that we have a biology, that we have an ecology, and that there is spirituality in that relationship or in that reality. The hunters, in their ceremony, use a real lion. In the show that we get at the Inn Where Only Delight lives, one, this ceremony is, or well, it's not a ceremony, this show is just a show. It's not a ceremony. It's for entertainment, not for spirituality. And it also involves an animal, but it's a fake animal. It is a, a metal snake. It is an artificial snake. And not only is it artificial, the show actually involves sacrificing a living animal, a, a rabbit, to this metal, this machine. And the, the machine also ultimately kills one of the performers during the during the raid. That's a really excellent point that I hadn't really considered too closely. If I had an inclination, I think, if I had an inclination to really reread this book and, and dig into it, I think you could really find that what Wolf is doing here is creating a series of endless parallels between every scene with a boss has an office or an order and and these rituals are are doing the same thing in these orientations between pressed and and the martians we're getting a series of parallels that are meant to inform us about the world and it is a really cool technique in writing and I just wish he had nailed it because, like, that's structuralism, right? This is this is a really a structuralist novel in a sense, if viewed in that way. And what structuralism means is that the meaning of the story can be pulled out from the structure that it's told in, and it's a conscious decision to structure a novel in a way that invokes its meaning, where its meaning can be found. And I think that's a little bit what's going on here. This is a structuralist novel. But I want to get back to your question because it's a fantastic one about the parallels in the rituals. One is explicitly artificial, which is the hunter's ritual. John knows all the tricks that's what's going on. He can explain them. He knows what's happening. There's nothing to be mystified about on his end. Yet, what it produces is legitimate experience for these people. It's a legitimate religious experience. And it's a wonderful scene. And we see how a community of people, maybe a collective identity, is built upon this type of spiritual exercise, this type of practice. And here, in the inn where only delight lives, we see maybe the exact opposite. People come in under the cloak of darkness. Um, maybe they come in in groups, but they sit in separate tables. They're not in a room together. Uh, the animal is dangerous, but it's designed to be dangerous. It's not, it's nature. It's made that way by people. And and the situation, the whole situation is kind of lurid in its design. Whereas we're told that um, uh, Tia Marie is like, you know, perhaps nude from the waist up in some circumstances or whatever. 
there's something powerful about that and humanizing. And in these situations at the inn where only delight lives, this is dehumanizing. This is meant to degrade these women and saying that, well, doing this is better than the life they'd have in Russia if they hadn't traveled. It's saying that them being these uh, kind of fetishistic objects in a lewd sense, rather than T. Marie being a fetish in the religious sense, that that is a better life for them than if they had just stayed in Russia. And so I think it's meant to tell something about the direction that these cultures are going in and that these civilizations are headed towards. Yeah, there's something Edenic about what Tia Marie is up to, where she's unashamed of her nakedness. She doesn't know she's naked, right? And there's this harmony with nature, this living in nature. And we see humanity's dominion over the animals in the sense that they've tamed the king, this lion. Whereas this Russian show, this performance is sex and gadgets. I think we can extrapolate that out to say that Mars, the Martians are the good guys in this book. Anyway, the good guys in this book are all using nature, right? The Martians are using biotech. So there is something here where the good guys are all using the power of life. They are using God's creation in Genesis as God, in fact, commands in that text, whereas the Russians are creating something artificial that is hollow. Yeah, it's about the, out of what image people are living out of. I think it's explicit in the scene with the hunters that Tia Marie says, even though man built it, it's still nature. There's something essential about the nature of man that can be reclaimed. And though even something is made by man, his stamp, the image of man, is not the thing that defines it because it's still natural, which is beyond man. And I think we see in the scene, the disastrous scene with the metal snake, which is, I mean, kind of what kind of how more explicit can you get in terms of imagery um, that uh, that it's it's catastrophic. That catastrophe occurs where people rely on the fact that something is made by their hands in their image. There is no nature. And what is done by the pride of man is purely destructive. Well, I think we can see another way in which the Russian technology is is destructive versus the Martian technology, which is constructive or creative in some way. And, and now I want to take us back to uh, something I raised earlier, which is to look at the way that these different cultures value a person's individual identity, a person as a psyche or a person as a soul. And I'll just get us started by pointing out that that we get a lot of space in chapter seven dedicated to showing us how Russia is using technology to suppress people's individual personalities, where on the other hand, we see Mars using technology to allow others to actually share their experiences with each other in a very intimate way. So one of these cultures is actively trying to suppress individualism, and the other culture is actually trying to find a way to share the deepest levels of your individualism with other people. That's a great read on the situation here in in this story. And I just mentioned that the hunters 
have a collective identity because they're sharing this experience of the ritual together and that this is a choice they're making and that uh, for anybody who's had a, you know, like what William James would refer to as like a religious experience, they are very powerful in both speaking to you directly as a human being, but also locating you within a larger group. This type of group identity and, and, and identity building within communities has essentially been taken over by um, mass communication in our age, where the experience of being singled out and being talked to directly allows you to feel as though you're participating in a group, even if you're sitting in your room watching the news alone. And this is a feature uh, of, of modern propaganda techniques that Jacques Ellul refers to in um, his great book on the subject called Propaganda, the Formation of Men's Minds. And what you're seeing here is is that there is something deep and intimate about being a human being that is worth sharing with others in group practice, but also in intimate one-on-one situations. And, and, and here we have this with kind of the mind melding of John and Anna, but also in the religious practice of the hunters. And we get the exact opposite of that in the scene in The Inn Where Only Delight Lives, where... People are there experiencing something together, but everyone's alone in that experience. Even though they're in a crowd, that experience is not for them. It's it's meant to be taken and consumed rather than shared. And it's private. It's dark. And the same thing is happening with these Russians. They're all sitting in the in the same room in this facility, it seems like. It's like a warehouse floor where they just have these stations set up. And people are sharing, by and large, the same experience, but they're isolated by means of communication, by the technology of communication. And I think that's also kind of what's going on here, is that there is there are collective experiences that are beneficial for the human soul. There are collective experiences that are uh, denigrating to the human soul. And there are collective experiences that isolate. And I think Wolf is explicitly showing us that television, putting on headphones in in a crowded room with other people, that these types of things are destructive to the fabric of our communities and ignore, they communicate such positive messages to us. Yes, Father, Father Arlington is there for you and there's a better place waiting for you, that we forget our need for one another. And yet, we're still going to be used by those in power, kind of no matter the situation. Yeah, we see this as well in these chapters when Japheth is actually thinking about how he identifies with the Martians, how that's the, the Martians are his people, our people is what he is, is how he thinks of them. So I think you, you're really right. You're really onto something here to point to community maybe as the central theme that's running through this not just the technology but also through the way that we're seeing religion and and performance and and also government functioning as well that that this perhaps we might feel at the end of the book that the central theme here has really been questions about community versus isolation uh finding your meaning and your value as an individual person within a community and losing it when you are isolated. And that's a really interesting concept to find here in this book. 
I hope we get it more explicitly developed in the next two chapters, which will round out the book for us. <laughs> well, I think if we're looking ahead to the next two chapters, I think that's uh, going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know if you think that Anna Trees is on the good guys team or the bad guys team. And let us know what you're seeing in terms of parallels, this this structuralism that Brandon pointed to. I'd be real interested to see other places uh, where you've seen it and we've missed it. Next time, we'll read chapters 9 and 10, which will bring us to the conclusion of Operationaries. But until then, we greet you and we say farewell. <laughs>